0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the HR Works Podcast, brought to you by HR Daily Advisor. I'm your guest host, Josh Zygmunt, Content Director for Simplify Media. The HR Works Podcast provides clear, relevant, and actionable information on topics that matter to you, the HR professional. When you're armed with the best practices and strategies to attract, retain, and engage top talent and deliver exceptional service to your organization, HR just works. In today's episode, we're joined by Erica Duncan and Aaron Ullman, human capital advisors, and co-founders for People on Point, a New Jersey-based human capital consultancy. Erica brings over 20 years of experience in HR strategy, organizational design, talent acquisition, and merger and acquisition integration. She's been a former chief people officer and CHRO for a variety of companies and is passionate about building and transforming HR teams by partnering with C-suite leaders. Aaron is an expert in HR systems, HR analytics, compensation design, and operational efficiency. With 10 years in progressive HR leadership in human resources for healthcare, home health, and other industries, he brings insight, expertise, and value to workforce planning, due diligence, and his unique ability to analyze people data and dashboards. Brought them both on today to talk about something we don't get the chance to really speak about as much on the HR Works podcast, and that's the mergers and acquisitions process, and more specifically, due diligence. Erica and Aaron have actually just recently contributed an article that's been published on HR Daily Advisor called The Missing Element of M&A Due Diligence, and we brought them on here to dig in a little bit more and really get to know Erica and Aaron personally. So Erica, Aaron, welcome to the HR Works podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us. Great.
0: Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you both on. And as I mentioned, really want to get you guys introduced to our audience to start before we dive in. So Erica, why don't you start us off and take us through your career path a bit and share what led you to pursuing a career in human resources?
1: I decided I think most human resources careers find the professional as much as the professional finds the career. But um, I started in training by trade. Um, so started at an automotive manufacturer many, many years ago in training um, by trade and got my master's at the same time in organization development. Um, and quickly just found passion in the people space. There's been a lot of change and progression since then, but um, out of the gate um, and in the people space, I'll call it loosely and really focusing on the design of organizations, the infrastructure of organizations, and instantly kind of got experience with merger and acquisition. So I'm not sure I planned to, but it was a manufacturer that was growing, um, have since spent 20 years in healthcare. And again, spend a lot of time in various size organizations that were part of the diligence um, and acquisition side on both ends. So whether being acquired or during the acquiring, and in all cases, the integration. So for me, it's really been a joy. Something I'm passionate about is talking about culture integration and how to set an organization up for for success. Um, And that usually includes scaling and sustaining those changes.
0: That's excellent. Thanks, Erica. And Aaron, what about yourself? What got you into a career in human resources?
2: Yeah, so I, I actually started off in human resources as an intern, um, so many, many years ago now, <laughs> um, in um, in healthcare. So I um, really kind of started there and never left. Um, I did notice that um, you know I had a kind of a unique skill set for somebody in HR, um, somebody a little bit more analytical that would really focus more on you know systems, process, technology, um, and it really wasn't a skill set that really I, I saw that existed um, certainly in any great capacity in human resources. So um, it, it's definitely a gap um, that I've noticed over time as you know, people in finance or or in IT you know, don't speak the same language, but yet i I find myself, I'm able to kind of bridge that gap, um, to be able to kind of, you know, fill that, um, void and, um, you know, bring solutions to the HR leaders as well as, um, you know, other executives in the space.
0: That's great. Well, again, thank you both for sharing your experience and what led you to your careers in human resources. Again, I love sharing those experiences. No two experiences are the same. No, no two paths are the same. Um, uh, Aaron, you've got that dyed in the wool and started as an intern and been in the HR community ever since. Uh, And that's so great, again, to be able to share that story as well. So let's get off in the conversation about mergers and acquisition and asking that question right off the top. How early into the M&A process should organizations be bringing their people operations teams and their HR leaders into the room? Yeah, I mean, I would say as
2: early as possible. Um, Earlier, the better. Um, And and probably before even uh, a letter of intent is signed, you know, more often than not, and I think uh, we've probably alluded to that in in the conversation already, HR usually gets involved a little bit too late in the process. Um, And it's after things may have been promised or, or, you know, we've gone a little too far down the road to really reel some of those things back if if needed. Um, But yeah, ideally sooner than later and and certainly um, before the, the letter of intent.
0: And then when we're looking at the due diligence process, and again, this is really just to to lay the groundwork for our learning here today in our conversation, many of our audience members could be very new in their HR careers and learning about due diligence through conversations such as this. What is due diligence in the M&A process and why is it so important to that process overall?
2: Yeah, I would say traditional um, due diligence um, from a human resources perspective is probably more focused on compliance. Really ensuring you know that employees uh, have the re- all the requirements, um, you know, whatever it may be, whatever governing body, you know, the organization is held accountable to, you know, making sure all the requirements are you know in their file, et cetera. Um, making sure you know we have all the I Nines, everybody legally able to be employed by a US organization. Um, and the other probably big one is just making sure we're paying people correctly. Um, I would say those are probably the big ones that you know, HR is usually focused on from a compliance standpoint. And typically, you know, most or about as much time as we typically are able to get in due diligence. Um, I would say there's a lot more that, that HR could get into and really should get into um, to assess the the potential acquired organization that could have a lot of benefits or, you know, avoid many pitfalls post deal, if you will.
0: That's great. So what are some of those overlooked elements that in the M&A process that HR team should be on the lookout for and, and really help address early on to save some of those long-term headaches? Yeah, I, I would say the biggest
2: one is probably assessing the current org structure and leadership and how do we anticipate that's going to fit into the the new org, if you will. You know, is it um, a company that's much smaller than its you know, acquiring company? Um, and again, how, that's typically how it works out, but how does it fit in to the new organization? You typically have executive leaders already um, leading that organization. What does it look like post-deal? Um, how are those individuals affected and, and what does kind of the, the future state of the organization look like? This typically affects a lot of things from compensation, titles, um, could even impact culture long-term. But those are things that, you know, typically, you know, once we're ready to go, that that new structure isn't necessarily defined, you know, as to what we expect it to look like.
0: Yeah, it seems like taking a more proactive approach there can certainly set you up for more long-term success and having at least a vision of where you see the organization going and setting up long-term post-acquisition. Uh, certainly seems like a win there for all parties.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and then, of course, the, the communication of what to expect is also important and typically overlooked, especially for those um, in the organization that's being acquired. Um, they're usually kind of left, um, you know, but not knowing um, what, what future state kind of looks like and, and what that means to them, um, as that's what's obviously they're, they're most um, worried about is, is how does it affect them. Um, And at the end of the day, for the frontline employees, you know, might not have a huge impact, but to be able to communicate that early, often, so that you can, you know, kind of hopefully avoid some of that turnover that could happen during the
0: acquisition. Aaron, I love that you mentioned looking at some of those major compliance issues. We're actually having this conversation leading up to HR Compliance Week on HR Daily Advisor. So we're going to run that episode as part of the themed week. So it's a great time to really park on that question alone. So, what are some of those major compliance risks and challenges HR teams should be looking out for? So, Erica, what are your thoughts? I'll have you take that one um, of just some of those key red flags that HR teams should be looking out for in a due diligence process.
1: I think you know it's a great question on the compliance side. Aaron listed a lot of the ones that come to mind off the top of heads, and I, I hesitate because it's not just an HR. Typically in a due diligence process, it's legal and finance leading the charge. Um, And so the compliance to and I'm going to affectionately say them, meaning non-HR folks are financial, right, and legal. And and that makes sense. As do HR, there's there's a bit of an overlap, though. So to answer your question directly, we're looking at, you know, the risks as Erin mentioned with I-9, the legalities of working in in the country, the organization, having the right certifications, things like that. Pay practices is a huge one. And I think that, again, our finance and legal friends and peers think of that, but they don't necessarily think of what it's going to cost or take to fix it. And so I'm specific on that when you ask about the compliance week, because we can say, were there DOL audits in the past? Yes or no. If so, have they been resolved? Yes or no. How do we have signed cards? You know, all these types of kind of tactical questions, but it doesn't necessarily hit the anticipatory side that you mentioned, you know, in Aaron's answer earlier, which is what else could happen if we merge or integrate? And so I think some of that compliance needs to be, when I say anticipatory, looking deeper into pay practices as opposed to audits. Right, Just because the DOL hasn't been there doesn't mean they won't be tomorrow. So to use that specific example, sometimes, again, the framework of the question you know, gives a lot um, of indication of what you're going to get back as an answer. So again, when you look at Compliance Week, it's a lot more about not just what has happened in the past, but what are our risks today? If we merge or acquire, what does that put us at risk for? And again, typically the question we don't ask is, what does it take to work us out of the risk? It doesn't mean you wouldn't move forward if there's a risk, but to sit and brainstorm for a, a minute and sit in the space of how do we figure it out will really cause a lot more streamlined uh, forward thinking and, and a lot more um, efficient you know, process going forward.
0: Yeah, it seems like foresight is, is really an asset to have going into the due diligence process and really thinking ahead to what may be coming with more of that foresight, with more of that forward thinking and looking back?
1: It is, and it seems you know so obvious as the three, you know, the three of us talk. But to your point of learning lessons and in, in helping those who haven't, it's not typically run that way. It's much more typically run with tactical questions that, again, you might be asked a finite question, and the audience is expecting a finite answer, and it's not always that simple. So, again, I would really say urging from lessons learned is is to anticipate those when you're going into even just the compliance side to really anticipate um, having time to have a little bit more of thought leadership questions, not just answering the tactical yes or no.
0: Now, let me ask you both this. Does the M&A process look the same and the due diligence process for that matter look the same in each deal and in each agreement or do each take different shape? Uh, Is there a one size fits all at at any point here or, or is each one really treated uniquely?
1: Yes, to all of that. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as I say, I think, I think there's some some basics that we need to make sure that we hit on in every every single one. But um, but yeah, then I think there's some some level of it needs to be tailored to the specific deal.
1: And The complexity varies, right. you know. That's one of the things I would say. Topically, yes, compensation we need to discuss. Legal risk we need to discuss culture, we need to discuss leadership, organization, design, all of the things that we list, you could have a checklist to make sure you've covered all topics. The depth and breadth to which you analyze them and discuss them really varies. I mean, Aaron can talk for hours on compensation and how it makes a difference in an organization. Well, an organization of 20 or 50 and, you know, 2000 to 5,000, we've done both. And although the topic's the same, the complexity to which you're going to discuss Again, the the changes and implications is is a big difference. The other thing I would say varies is the level of time you spend on change management. Again, a topic for both small and large um, and anyone in between. But again, the intricacies of the organization and complexities of the industry make a big difference to how much time you spend on each of those things.
0: So I think I know where this answer is going, but uh, let's ask it anyway. I'm assuming the size of organizations really dictates a lot of the process as well. Whether you're looking at maybe a large enterprise acquiring a small business to an acquisition of equal size, how are those looked at differently? I mean, what are some of the different complexities that you see in both small to large and equal size?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, certainly one of the the points I I hit on earlier about just the org structure and what that's going to look like. I mean, typically if you're a larger enterprise acquiring a smaller one, um, you know, that that's usually pretty clear, right? I mean, how they're going to fit into the organization, um, you know, it really comes down to, um, you know, where, where are they going to plug in? Um, if you have something of equal size that you're going to acquire, that could really change the dynamic of the structure and, um, the individuals that ultimately lead the organization. Um, you know, it, it, the, the, Yeah, it just becomes much more complex from that standpoint.
1: The current state's different, right? So one way to think about it, the process or topic might be the same, but the more complex the current state of an organization is, the the more time you need to analyze it, right? I mean, you're stating the obvious, but again, I'm not sure everyone takes the time to, to, to prepare or think through that. So a lot of time that Aaron and I would spend on things like the title level complexity or compensation and pay practices, the same topics we've mentioned, again, is if it's a company with 20 people that are all exempt, that's a much simpler organization to to diagnose, to look through, to, to set up than it is again, one with thousands where you've got exempt, not exempt people who travel, people who don't, you know, again, just to state the obvious, but again, it's not as obvious if you haven't done it before. Right. So the point of, you know, pausing to think through that. And again, I think the scope of those conversations are the part that, I just want to keep underscoring working very closely with finance and and legal friends to understand it's the why to include HR sooner. It's not that they can't check the same compliance side of it. But again, they're looking at a checklist, not necessarily going through the intricacies that we would be looked to. We meaning HR would be looked to to fix if the deal goes forward.
0: Sure. And even going beyond compliance, uh, I believe, Eric, you mentioned earlier the culture piece of it, too. You're looking at corporate cultures that you're now combining, going from maybe a larger acquisition of a 20-person company that may be easier to integrate those 20 people into your existing culture. But if you're a a like-size acquisition and you're bringing on maybe 40% of a new workforce, those are people who who have culture – And are probably going to want to retain some of that coming in. So to me, it seems like there's an opportunity to really look at blending those together as opposed to just fitting a new culture into the existing model.
1: You're exactly right. And that's where the majority of of my time, Aaron's as well, has been spent for years and years. Because unfortunately, again, we don't always take the time to think about that. It's assumed big fish is buying little fish or even two fish fishes, two fish the same size are coming together, right? And they got to swim in the same pond, but we didn't take the time to say, what do we want the pond to look like, right? So I think that to really saying, what do we want our culture to be is a very important exercise. As Aaron's talked about the leadership and blending them, there is no way to have one culture, quote unquote, take over or become the other one. It just doesn't work that way. We all know innately that Departments have different cultures. Schools have different cultures. You know, organizations have different cultures. Cultures are an output of every single decision that you make day in and day out that creates a culture. You can't just change a culture. You have to go back into the process and create a similar path for all of those decisions and policies and practices. And that creates, again, a culture. I think that the question of how to retain those is to include them. Right. And so it's connectivity, it's engagement, it's connection with the leaders that are becoming part of something new and to build what we affectionately will give another tidbit often called NUCO. So for new company, right, a lot of times if an m a doesn't have a name or it's, it's a, often a code word, um, NUCO becomes the name for the organization that you're blending. Right. And so to really stop and say, what do we want NUCO to look and feel like, it won't be then an accident what it becomes. So the retention piece and keeping those key employees is allowing them to be part of that, to build that, to express their concerns about that and their fears about that. Because to Aaron's earlier point of communication, again, rarely, especially at deal stage, people don't want to say anything. The problem with that is in the absence of information, we all make it up. So they've drawn conclusions. They're all talking about it, right? Whoever the day is. So really taking the time to engage people in the in the conversation and the process and then the desired outcome, we'll have a much better chance of retaining those you want to
0: stay on. That's great. I love that you circled back to Aaron's point about communication because, again, that really seems to be the key in making this a smooth process is getting out in front of that communication, making sure you're very thorough and and open throughout the process too, especially when you take into account something like culture uh, that can be, again, so fragile but so dynamic as well in, in moving forward and, and when you've got that clear communication, it only seems like the best process to build that new culture going forward. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Yeah. And all of those compliance pieces. I mean, Aaron's got multiple, multiple stories of places who didn't talk about title or compensation first. And although that's a scientific part of it, that that creates culture. Because, again, that's one of those individual decisions that have been made or not made Um and again, without having, you know, and you can talk about title leveling a little bit, but without having a, a process by which to do that and blend the two cultures, it won't it won't turn out to be what everyone is looking for.
2: Yeah, because going back to how, how that impacts the individual person, right? They, they need to know how, where they fit in the bigger picture, if you will. Right. Um, and what Erica was talking about, title leveling. So oftentimes, especially when you have the bigger fish, you know, acquiring the smaller one, um, you're acquiring again higher-level titles typically because, well, uh, pr- prior to the acquisition, well, they were the executive team, they were the leadership team. Well, now they're just a piece of the larger company, right? So it's it's how do we merge that um, into the new company without you know ruffling too many feathers. Um, so ideally, you have some sort of structure working in the background that says, "Well, okay, you might be called an, a VP today, but you know we're going to leave you as a VP because you're still going to oversee your your space. Um, but really, you're actually mapping to like a director level, and that means this for you um, in terms of compensation, in terms of benefits, in terms of incentives, so that you actually know you know how that actually impacts you day, day to day."
0: Speaking of just integrating existing leaders into a new organization and and merging title sets, oftentimes in the M&A process, you're looking at bringing over existing members from an organization. Ideally, you can bring over as many as possible, but with talent being such a premium right now, and oftentimes that talent is the secret sauce of an organization's success, how do you make sure you're bringing those key people over in an M&A process and getting them in the right place?
1: I think there's two parts to your question, is how do you keep those that are the A or star players and B, how do you retain them once you've identified them as wanting, wanting to stay? And I think the identification process is an important thing to do. And again, part of uh, underscoring HR's involvement earlier because we're looking for things, even doing, during due diligence that's more tactical, we're looking for things that are more strategic in nature. Who's the decision makers? How many speak up? How collaborative is the current culture? how collaborative are the individuals? How do their skill sets match with the organization design we have? So if there's already a a hole or a void, is there someone there that can fill it with those skill sets? So those are things we're thinking ahead about. So the identification process, again, underscoring including HR early. Secondly, a a more, um, I, I guess, scientific approach would be the talent bench strength analysis. So looking at who do you have? What are their skills and attributes as well as experience? I think there's there's both there. And, and again, unfortunately, there's a lot of fit in this conversation. So how well does the does the fit of the organization and the individuals meet? Um, and I talk a lot about assimilation. And so for me, when you look at who to retain, why to retain, how to retain, it's, it's very much like the analogy of a wedding. Many people spend years and years or much time preparing for the wedding, not the marriage. And so similarly, spending time not for the deal, that's a transaction, right, but much more assimilating cultures. And I think forward thinking individuals who think of a transaction beyond the signature and go into how do we assimilate, that is the type of leader I would be looking for. And I would bring you know, all holds barred to retain them. So then that comes back to engaging them in the process, helping them to build the new organization. Those that can, again, create and feel that energy about what we're building that's new, it can often work against ourselves to need to retain the history. Oftentimes that happens. You need the legacy, you need the history, you need the involvement. But my caution would be if it doesn't help in the assimilation. So, again, if you need someone involved in the relationship, let's make sure they help the marriage, not just the wedding. Right. Um, and so, really, to take that as a lens of who to retain and then how, um, because otherwise legacy can can happen a different way in a knowledge transfer process.
0: That's interesting. I really love that wedding to marriage analogy that works perfectly. And, and again, has more of that, that long term vision involved to which. We've made that point a couple times now. Mm-hmm. You've got to have really some of that foresight and looking downstream beyond just the actual negotiation and agreement process, but to that long-term success and really what you're building.
1: Exactly. What can be a good fit today may or may not be with the next change of the world that comes, right?
0: Right. All right. Well, so looking at the M&A and due diligence process and having this conversation, not just for our existing HR leaders who may have been through this process, but even some of those up and coming HR leaders who are learning about M&A and learning about due diligence, What's their best way to learn and how do we train our up and coming HR leaders? Is it through shadowing mentorship? Is it bringing these HR leaders into a due diligence process or are there some of those soft skills that we can train and advise on ahead of time to get prepared? What, what do you guys think about that training process?
2: Yeah, I guess my, my personal opinion would be just, you know, I think it's best to learn, um, you know, trial by fire, if you will. (laughs) Um, And ideally you get to, to do it alongside somebody else who is experienced um, but yeah, I think ultimately, you know, the best way to learn is to really go through a, a, a merger and acquisition and to really get a sense um, uh, for, for what it's like and to go through due diligence and, and see what that's like and be able to help out um, initially before you you know, can take that on your, yourself.
0: Yeah, it seems like they're, again, they're so unique, as you mentioned, that being actually in a live environment and seeing it firsthand is your best way to learn as opposed to sitting in the classroom. There's not really a classroom for each process because it's so unique.
2: Yeah, again, there's there's basics that you got to make sure you check off the list, if you will, right, and check the box. But but yeah, they they are uh, very much a living organism, if you will, and, and being able to pivot and change, you know, with it is is you know only way to learn is is by doing it. I think.
1: I think there's no two that'll be the same, right? right. And so to your point, that makes it really hard to learn. I think there's absolutely courses, um, there's books, there's you know the article we just wrote gave a lot of tactical questions, you know, just from lessons learned. So I think that the one piece of advice I'd give on that front is just ask a lot of questions of someone who's done it if you don't have, you know, another formal learning. To Aaron's point of just doing it, I mean, he and I worked together for 10 years. um, So the dance that we do, we've tripped over one another and everyone around us multiple times, right? And so I think there has to be a freedom and willingness to fail. That's scary because there's a high risk in that. But again, HR is not doing the diligence on their own. So I think the other lesson, um, way to learn is, is asking to be part of it. And so as simple as that sounds, it's no different than learning to drive a car. We all send teens to driver's ed. We read the book, you take the test, and then we all tell them to practice defensive driving. You can't practice it, right? You've just got to start driving and watch everyone around you. There's a similarity to that. You couldn't say, take the driving test and never get on the road. So I think the... The parallel of doing both, learning some of the, you know, the nuts and bolts, the playbook, if you will, but also surrounding yourself with people who allow you to learn by experience and don't give you a fear of failure because every single one we've learned something different and would take it to the next.
0: Right. And that just, again, lobbies more for the mentorship opportunities that uh, so many teams can create and really help coach and teach through experience. I think that is such a great way to look at it. And again, thank you both for laying that out. It really seems like in terms of soft skills as well, communication is really a strong piece that leaders can bring to the table as they're getting integrated into the uh, the due diligence process and the M&A process is understanding and being strong communicators. And that seems like a, a really key, key component and a key tool to have
1: it is. And Aaron said something earlier that's really important. What do the frontline people need to know? So most people in communication, particularly in diligence, when they speak of communication, think they mean the one way. Here's where we're at in the deal. Here's how many more steps we have. Here's the time frame in which the next thing's going to happen, all of which is necessary. But to Aaron's point, that's not really what the front line, but they want to know, do I have a job? Is it going to affect my pay? Will my title be the same? Do I have to drive to a different office? Do they have the same mileage reimbursement? I mean, it's much more um, tactical and frontline perspective, and that's often what's missed. So it's not just communicating, but taking the time, having focus groups, answering questions, as Aaron said, early and often to those people that will be impacted, particularly so you don't end up with a talent gap because we didn't. So if those folks aren't excited and along for the ride, that spreads.
2: And I think even, even you know, again, going through the process, you might not know the answers to a lot of those questions mm. right away, right? But I think you can start to communicate when you anticipate, you'll start to be able to to tell your that frontline staff worker more, right? To, to be able to share, you know, um, that with them so that they can, um, you know, because they'll be asking the questions every day until they find out, right? <laughs> so if you can share... Um, you know, here's kind of what it looks like. Here's when we think we're going to know, you know, um, these things that that impact you. Um, and then, of course, at that point, um, you know, having a very robust communication strategy to, to get that information out to those um, employees at that time.
0: Yeah, it seems like this drives home the point of on the job training being crucial here and really being in the experience, um, learning your pacing that way, too. You're really understanding when you need to be right at, at a moment's notice and really be available for immediate feedback versus when you have some time to again do some further investigation. Uh, I'm sure that's a pacing piece that really you only get to learn through doing it. Hundred percent, So for our audience who may be new to the diligence process, may be new to the M&A process as HR members, what's that one piece of advice that you could pass along as I need to know item before jumping into the process to set them up for success. What's that one piece either that you wish you had known or that sticks out to you that you're like, this is the the must have item for your first go around in due diligence.
1: Don't hide bad news. Um, Love it. Well, (laughs) I think, you know, continuing to the conversation we're having now, I think that most, most experiences have been surrounded with promises. Um, early on that are either there'll be very little change, you won't feel change, it'll be the same company that's a back office transaction. I haven't seen one of those things ever be true, ever. And so I would not hide bad news. And I would not downplay a transaction. Because again, by definition, you're looking for change. So I've yet to understand why our our communication platform would be, don't expect any change. If so, why would you do the transaction? So I think instead leaning into, we are expecting change. Here's the outcomes we want to have. Here's why it's exciting. And if there's bad news and bad is in air quotes, right? Changing a benefit plan could be uh, the most exciting thing for half the organization and bad news for the other half. So I'm just saying if, even if it changes jobs or people won't all be employed, Hiding it doesn't help anyone and and you're lacking the biggest thing, which is trust going forward. So again, in my experience, the transparent, crucial conversations that people have, sprinkle the heck out of it with kind candor and just make sure that you're as honest and forthright as you can be. And often the answers, I don't know, but they'll believe you, Right. right? They'll believe you. So the whole thing is people want honest answers. So for me, it would be don't hide bad news and don't hide behind the fact that there will be change because they don't even believe that, right? It just doesn't even make sense. So instead, um, there's a lot of lessons learned around that. And if there's one single thing to me, that's, that's by far
0: the top of the list. I love it. It's not too often that uh, transparency is a bad thing. In any right, box, uh...
1: but it's also not too often that it's your leading. Right, <laughs> good
0: point. Aaron, how about yourself? What What do you think is a good first piece of advice for anybody new to the M and A and diligence process? Yeah,
2: that, I don't know. That's that's a tough one to top. Um, that's really good, but I I think I, I'd like to call out, and this kind of goes back to what I was you know just saying a minute ago with communication. Is it's okay to say I don't know, or we haven't figured that out yet, right? I, I mean, to Erica's point, you know, yes, we'd love to have all the answers, but you're not going to. Um, You know, it's just it's just not going to happen and certainly not in the time frame that everybody's going to want it to happen. (laughs) Um, So I I think it's it's okay to say I don't know, um, you know, and unfortunately, you know, it's never good not to have the the answers. But, you know, to Eric's point, at least then they can trust that when I say I don't know, I actually don't know. Instead of like there actually is something that's happening that, you know, people start to. Um, the rumor mill starts and, and all that good stuff. So, I mean, I think it's okay to, to say, I don't know. To take that advice one step further. I'm just
1: smiling to myself thinking of years and years of experience. I can list three off the top of my head with other people, my leaders at the time, right? We have CEOs um, of a healthcare system years ago who stood up and promised something at a town hall and it was a benefits related thing. And I, I'm looking at, it, I'm like, how would you even know? Where did that come from? <laughs> right, and then and it wasn't a big deal to him, but I had to figure out how to make it happen because in my mind that was not promised. Other things, again, like I've said, with, with no change, or you've got leaders who, who have all the right intentions to say, don't worry, the jobs are safe or your pay is safe. And, and so for me, the point I'm, I'm leaning on with the advice is make sure that the talking points that you have worked solid lockstep with the leaders who are going to be communicating on your behalf. Right. Right? Because unfortunately, a lot of the reputation of HR is in actually being able to implement and maintain the commitments that have been made. If you're not the one making the commitments, that's a lot more difficult. So, again, my other lesson learned would be not only the, the tips we're giving you, but not just for yourself. You have to commit to them for the organization and make sure that you have those relationships with the leaders that are, again, in front of the audiences if it's not you.
0: Yeah, it seems like getting on the same page, that's something that seems fairly obvious but will certainly show up down the line if you're not addressing that early on and really in alignment across the board. That's something that's going to – that will come back to haunt you down the road at some point. (laughs) All right, so in keeping with this idea of advice, it's a question I really like to ask of a lot of our guests with any process we're looking at. But with the due diligence process, maybe what's one thing that HR teams should start doing in their process to be better? But then also, what's one thing that teams should stop doing that may be getting in the way and just may not be as efficient?
1: I think the, the stop doing are two things. One is waiting to be asked to be involved. I'm not sure that invitation comes. So I think it's a little bit more of command um, being at the table. You can't demand it, right? But you've got to command it. And I think the, the invitation isn't going to show up in your mailbox. So you've got to figure out a way to be involved and stop waiting for the invitation. Secondly is and the stop doing and Aaron, this is something that he mentioned a lot, but doing compliance only, right? So we don't want to stop doing compliance. We want to stop doing compliance only. And so I think that's a that leads to what do you start doing? And that's, again, a lot more of the forward thinking, cultural integration work. Um, And again, you heard my soapbox on assimilation. But from the standpoint of start doing, think of the transaction as, again, a marriage, not a transaction that stops at the point of a deal sign and much more of, of a whole um, culture change, culture shift, and we've all experienced three years worth of things you couldn't anticipate. So you've got to be able to build an organizational organism and structure that can withstand things like that.
0: That's fantastic advice. Thank you for that, Erica. So again, we're here with Erica Duncan and Aaron Ullman, Human Capital Advisors and co-founders for People on Point. Erica, Aaron, what's the craziest thing you've seen in the MA process? Aaron, why don't you start us off? What's the craziest thing you've seen going through M&A?
2: Uh, well, yeah, I think it just it, it comes down to not, um, you know, including HR in either not in the process at all. Um, I, I have seen that like, OK, like we're going to be onboarding employees in the next, you know, two or three weeks. Are you ready? Kind of thing. And that's the first to hear about it, which is is absolutely crazy. Um, and. It, you Know it, to be more specific, you know, mm-hmm. we've been so far down a road, um, to I believe even signed, um, or have, actually had the deal signed, um, and come to find out, um, one of their leaders was a part of uh, was a union leader, and we were a non union organization, mm-hmm. um, you know, so it, it's it's again, it's not getting it's right, nothing against. <laughs> Nothing against that, but, you know, if, if you typically, when you're a non-union organization, you like to stay um, non-union, um, and here we are inviting that into our house. But anyway, um, so, but that was all because we weren't involved early enough in the process, right, um, or, or at all. That
1: that was crazy. I was there for that one, too. And again, we've got 10 years of, of, of doing this. Um Together, And I think that my summary would be the craziest thing is at the end of all those experiences, there's still a surprise face. (laughs) So despite that you have this experience that someone could get to the point of using, you know, Aaron's example that we got there and then the organization looks shocked um, and as a surprise face that we opened ourselves up to a union. And so I say that tongue in cheek, but over and over again, if we've promised no change, we get to the end of it. And then the craziest thing to me is they look surprised when the employees aren't ready for change. right? Forgetting that we just promised there wasn't any. So to me, the craziest thing is not anticipating and then having a surprise face when something happens when we could have easily anticipated and worked through it and frankly used it to our
0: advantage. Sure. Those are both great responses. Is there ever a sticking point in the m&a process or in due diligence that you see more common than not and a point where you kind of brace yourself and say okay we've got to get through this period
1: each one's different but i think the legal risk is is a typical one where you're looking for again the pay practice department of labor and and some of that's because of the space we've been in Um, but i think that that's that's definitely one um that you you just kind of know is going to be a bit tedious
0: all right yeah that's that's really helpful so, looking at new trends, and this is something we often have this conversation about, whether we're talking about some of the many aspects of the HR community. With MA, what are some of those trends that we see coming that HR teams should be thinking about and really be aware of going into 2023 and beyond?
2: Yeah, I would think probably one of the biggest one is um, just remote work. So, um, you know, the acquiring organization, what what's their stance on remote? Right. Um, right. Are, are you expected to come into the office? Are you not? Um, you know, I, I think um, that is going to have a, a uh, is going to be a bigger piece of again, the cultural piece as well, um, or fit into the cultural piece. Um, but how does that fit in? You know, what's the commitment to that? Right? Are we, are we all, you know, are we four days a week, five days a week in the office? Or are we completely remote? Um, and how is that going to impact, um, you know, that that new organization?
1: The only thing, other thing I'd add, I don't know that it's it's new is in unchartered territory. It's new in a priority because of the war on talent. And I would say that's the branding piece when it comes to recruitment. So if you're trying to leave individual brands as two organizations, again, assimilate or come together, transactionally, that just doesn't work well. And so you'd have to work things out like what do two ATSs or applicant tracking systems do? How does a candidate get routed? So again, another lesson learned if you're going to have a deal and someone's applied to company A, they're going to become company B, make sure your candidates don't get lost. So just in that actual, you know, it's a tactical thing to think through, but because of the talent and the deficit of talent in many cases, being able to think through their experience isn't always top of the list. But I think again, it isn't new because it's uncharted. It's new because of the priority that we're at. And I think of looking through a candidate lens, as a deal is happening or before a deal is happening is a really important piece to prioritize that probably hasn't been in the you know recent past.
0: That's some great advice. So Erica Duncan and Aaron Ullman, Human Capital Advisors and Co-Founders for People on Point. Thank you again, Erica, Aaron. For our listeners, I'd love for you to share just something you're both excited about going forward with People on Point. Feel free to plug anything you've got going on that you're excited about.
1: I think we're excited about doing this work, helping others to, you know, avoid maybe some of the same mistakes we have to be able to laugh at ourselves and say, I wish we had knew or thought of, and really being able to bring that thought leadership to organizations, big and small, it's industry agnostic, it's size agnostic, because it needs to be prioritized in all of those cases. So. For us, it's a it's a passion point. We enjoy it. We enjoy working together. You hopefully can hear that and we can talk about all day things that we would do differently and have learned from mistakes and, and happy to lean into others that are looking to do that and really experience with them, augment them and their teams from thought leadership to fractional work to
0: you know, an M&A project itself. That's great. What's the best place to reach you guys and learn more for anybody interested out there?
2: Yeah, um, our website, um, peopleonpoint.org. Um, Or you can certainly find both of us and our company on LinkedIn.
0: Fantastic. All right. So we've talked about learning so much over the M&A process, over due diligence. We've learned so much over the last few years as professionals, all of us really have. What's something you've learned about yourself in the last few years that's made you a better leader and better in your day-to-day job?
2: Um, Yeah. Well, one of the things that I've learned um, is, you know, I I think both of us, uh, but, um, myself in particular, just I have a very unique skill set. I'd say I've probably learned that more so over the last few years that um, you know I look at things in ways that um, a lot of people do not um, as ter- in terms of um, you know system process and technology. Um, and I would say you know the reason we started people on point was because we, we continue to come across the same issues um, and have to fix the same issues. Um, you know, so clearly it was something that nobody else was seeing as a problem. Um, so, you know, for whatever it is, the way our minds work, however, you know, we see it, um, you know, we're able to find these problems and assess them and fix them. Um, and again, you know, it just, it is apparently a, a more unique skill set than I thought. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, the whole reason we we're, we're here, if you will. I don't have a lot and a lot to
1: add. That was a great answer. And I think, um. One of the things we've we've learned, especially in the last few years, is diagnosing problems before fixing them is something we do innately, and and many people and organizations don't. Um, So I literally had someone tell me a couple hours ago, if I had a nickel for every time he told me that, and I said, well, (laughs) would you jump into solving something you you haven't even identified yet? And so to Aaron's point, I think the skill sets that we have, that we share, that we overlap, that we augment for one another have made it exciting and, and um, a passion point that we get to help other people. And I think we've lastly learned that we kind of like this messy work and so to go do it on our own and, and, and be able to, to build something, you know, that that we can call our own company and know that we have impacted the change and improvement in one way, shape or form for someone else is just really gratifying. And, and the messy work is not something that either of us shy away from.
0: You've learned your superpower. Your HR yeah, that's it. Power through. Uh, <laughs> that sounds uh, much better the way he says um, it. Let's, let's call it so that. It. I love it. All right. So what is that one piece of advice, that best piece of professional advice that you received that you've leaned on maybe in some of your tougher times throughout your career that you could pass along to HR professionals, our listeners, our audience, and pay it forward, help them out. So I'd love to hear each of yours that you've leaned on throughout your careers. Well, I
1: already shared the, the, you know, don't shy from bad news. So I suppose that's the tactical one, a little bit more or professional one. The more personal one, I would say that I would share is don't doubt yourself. For me, many times over the years, I've said, when I start doubting myself and how I think and what my innate answers are and my joy comes from and my um, hardwired responses to things, if I doubt that, I I know I'm not giving my best and I'm, I'm not showing up in the best way that I can. So for me, the advice to someone else is trust who you are, trust what, you know, um, don't compromise who you are and what you believe in. And I think that if you can stay true to that, the outcome will be what it is. Again, you can't be afraid to fail in that, but I think every time I start doubting myself, it
0: shows up in my work. I love it. That's a good one. Thanks, Erica. Aaron, how about yourself?
2: Yeah, I, I think Erica said it at the end there. Um, I know many of people have said before, but the, the, not being afraid to fail, just, just try it, you know, try it small, right? Try it, whatever it is, whether it's in recruitment or whatever space in HR, just, just start somewhere and just try it. Um, don't worry about it being perfect. Um, just start mm-hmm. getting it moving and, you know, start to see the results. And if the results aren't, you know, where you want them to be, then just you, you make the change and try again. It's better to have it almost there than not at all right um if that makes sense
0: it makes perfect sense and that's a great one so yeah Aaron, thank you for sharing that one so one bonus question to tack on the end here and then we'll let (laughs) you guys go and i ask this of all of our guests when we close out and it's all about motivation when you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the floor what's the one thing that gets you going to start your day and it can be anything it can be coffee it could be work-related it could be dogs it be kids uh erica why don't you start us off what's what's your big motivator to get your day started
1: Oh, I'm laughing only because I know this about myself is when my feet hit the floor, I'm full on me. And so that's a lot for some people to take. So I laugh about that. Motivating um, myself is, is probably not the challenge. I think to, um, to Aaron's point, it's sticking to something that I know may or may not work. So I suppose the motivation becomes switching to execution and sustaining something that I know that is going to be a challenge. So for me, that's the motivation is to, to try to see something through that I haven't done before in a way in which I haven't done it.
0: That's great. Aaron, how
2: about you? Well, unlike Erica, I need coffee first um, before I can be full on me, which is, is still um, you know, a little <laughs> bit below her. Um,
1: <laughs> Thank goodness.
2: <laughs> but, but what really gets me, me up and, and what I really enjoy is, is just, um, you know, it has to do with it's either it's, it's building something and, and problem solving it. Um, and that's part of what um, I always really wanted to you know go out on my own in some way shape or form and, and build something of my own um, and then be able to you know impart that knowledge onto these other organizations and help them solve their problems based on you know things that I've built in the past um, that's that's what really you know
0: gets me up in great answers for both of you. Thank you both for sharing that. And thank you both for just giving us some great insight on the mergers and acquisition and due diligence process. Again, what you shared today was fantastic and a great way for us to share some information as part of Compliance Week, but just overall. And again, I'd encourage our audience out there to certainly check out Erica and Aaron's article on HR Daily Advisor, The Missing Elements of M&A Due Diligence. It's a must read, but Erica, Aaron, thank you so much for joining the HR Works podcast. It was a pleasure spending some time with you and having a great conversation. I hope we can do it again soon
2: absolutely thank you
1: thanks for having us it was our pleasure
0: thank you for listening to the hr works podcast be sure to check out our new episodes every tuesday follow us on all major streaming platforms including itunes spotify and amazon audible